0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastik. This week marks our 100th episode, and to celebrate, I've invited back one of my favorite science journalists, Angela Saney, who joined us on the show two years ago to talk about her first book, Inferior, which was about how science got women wrong. This year, she's back with her follow up, Superior The Return of Race Science, a book I honestly wish weren't so relevant in 2019. With far-right nationalism and white supremacy on the rise around the world, we're seeing an uptick in pseudoscientific and pseudo-intellectual justifications for racism. As Angela points out, race is a relatively recent concept, but mix it with science. And suddenly, you have an incredibly toxic justification for a whole range of policies, from legal rights to health to immigration. The uses of race science can be glaringly explicit. Especially when it's coming from the mouth of a Richard Spencer or a Charles Murray or a Steve Bannon. Or from the white supremacists who chug milk to show their white superiority and then go marching with tiki torches. But there are more insidious examples which creep into all aspects of our lives. The way that health outcomes, for example, for different groups are framed as biological differences rather than the consequences of social inequality and unjust history. Drawing on archives and interviews with dozens of prominent scientists, Angela Saney shows us how race science never really left us, and that in 2019, science is just as obsessed with those vanishingly small biological differences between us. Angela Saney joins us from London. Thanks so much for coming back on the show,
2: Angela. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be on here again.
0: What I love so much about your work is how you deflate all of these myths that we tell ourselves about science, that it's objective, apolitical, free from bias, and situate the field where it belongs in the context of society with all of the attendant baggage. And one of the most glaring examples of that is race science, of course, which was an entirely legitimate area of study well into the middle of the 20th century. So what does the history of race science tell us about the field today and the study of race today?
2: Well, for me, um, I'm sometimes surprised when people assume that science is completely objective, that it has nothing to do with politics, it sits outside society and is somehow free of any concerns around bias or prejudice, because science ultimately, all research is done by human beings, and human beings sit in society and in culture. So of course, especially when we're researching uh, humans and human behaviour and psychology, And especially when we're looking at groups of people, especially groups of people we may not be familiar with, then of course, bias and prejudice come into play just as they do in our everyday lives. So in the 19th century, the idea that there might be a racial hierarchy between humans, that some humans were more evolved than others or superior to others, was actually very widespread not for any other reason than this was an idea that was widespread in society anyway. (laughs) This was the pretext to colonialism and slavery and genocide and all these terrible things that had already happened in society on the assumption that some people are better than others, naturally inferior to others. Um, Of course, science absorbed those ideas. And so mainstream scientists, including geniuses like Charles Darwin, believed that we were not all equal, that some of us may even be more evolved than others. And this was very, very mainstream thinking throughout the 19th century in Europe.
0: Right. And I mean, when you say race science, it automatically conjures up images of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. But I mean, the big lesson of your book, I think, is that race science never really left us. Because, obviously, there have been eugenicists and pseudoscientists taking explicitly racist science underground. But it's not like the biological study of human difference disappeared after World War II, right? After the Nuremberg trials. Scientists are still zeroing in on these minute differences between groups, but it's almost like the terms have been redefined, right? Right.
2: Absolutely. And just as in the 19th century, scientists were unable to look beyond the politics of their day very often. So in the second half of the 20th century, scientists weren't always able to look beyond the politics of the day. And we have to remember that however big a shock um, Nazi racial hygiene was to academia, even after the Second World War there was still colonialism, there was still apartheid, there was still segregation in the United States, so there were still these racial rifts in many societies and that continued to play out in academia. So one of the things I write about in the book is how um, scientists Very well-meaning scientists, so scientists who were avowedly anti-racist, liberal, left-wing, progressive, who saw themselves as part of this new movement of politics that emerged after the Second World War, the kind of politics that gave rise to the European Union and, you know, international pacts and treaties, those kind of people... In their minds, they, they had the moral upper ground because they were the kind of way of the future. They were on the right side of history. And yet even they weren't able to fully leave behind racial frameworks of the past and or think about people in racialized ways. So you could see, for instance, the field of population genetics, which was a field that emerged out of the Second World War, essentially really as a way of... Looking at human difference in a more thorough and rigorous way, unlike the race science of the past. So in the 19th and early 20th century, race scientists, and we have to remember race science was quite legitimate in the 19th century. People who'd been looking at human variation had studied the shapes of people's faces, the sizes of their skulls, their skin colour, their hair texture, all these things that we associate with the negative aspects of race science. After the Second World War, scientists still wanted to look at human variation, but how would they do it now? And the way they did it was they turned to genetics. They said, OK, well, it's it's very unscientific to look at things like hair colour or skin colour, but we can look at genetics because genetics is molecular. It feels mathematical, it feels more rigorous. And population genetics now is a huge field, it's very mainstream and very popular. Um, If you look at some of the categories population geneticists used, they're not a world away from the categories that race scientists used in the 19th century. Now, they wouldn't see themselves as doing race science. Obviously, they will never even use the word race when they're talking about population groups. But uh, sometimes the categories that they use, the language that they use strangely overlaps the language that was used in the past. And this is a problem that has been identified within the field and people are trying to rectify it. But for me, as I write in Superior, it kind of speaks to the issues that we have as a society in feeling that the science that we're doing at the time that we're in is completely objective without completely understanding that actually it may be tainted by the problems of the past.
0: And what's interesting too is... I guess how arbitrary those population groupings seem to be if you remove history. Um, Because you talk a lot about how really, in fact, there are more like fine gradations between populations rather than um, distinct borders. You know, genetics doesn't really pay attention to the division between, say, like Scotland and Britain, and that you might in fact be more related to your you know, white neighbor downstairs than the Indian woman across the street. Can you debunk, I suppose, the idea Mm -hmm. of grouping people by these populations and show how arbitrary they kind of are?
2: Well, you know, when we look at the world around us and we think that we know where people are from and how to group them racially, we have to understand that this is a process that we are trained to do from a very young age you know, our eyes and minds are trained to look for certain particular physical traits that allow us to categorize people into the categories that society has defined for us. And these categories are different depending on the country that you live in. So in the US, for example, anyone with any discernible African ancestry is categorized as black. And that means you can be very, very fair skinned and still be called a black American. In South Africa, that would be very different. In the UK, you would be called mixed race rather than black. So there are, you know, these categories vary depending on where you are. And also the categories themselves are quite arbitrary. You know, to be black, what does that even mean? In Within Africa, we know that there is an entire range of skin tones. Genetically, you can see the variations, the variants, the genetic variants for very fair skin in SAN Hunter Gatherers, the Bushmen of South Africa, these are traits that have existed for a very long time in our lineage and exist everywhere. This means this this is the reason why you cannot do a test for race. Despite what ancestry testing companies tell us, you know, like twenty three and me, um, they claim to tell us where we're from. Actually all they're doing is grouping us depending on genetic similarity they see in the very margins of our genome with many other people. We know that you are more genetically related to people who are in your family. So I have a close genetic relationship to my parents and to my sisters. Um, and then I have a slightly weaker genetic relationship to my cousins my aunts and uncles and that continues the further away you go the weaker that genetic relationship gets and we know throughout history people have tended to live close to their relatives so in within communities there will be some element of genetic commonality if you haven't moved around very much which is true of most people in the world and this is as far as it goes this is how genetic commonality works and that means that it's impossible to say that there are five races or six races or a million races even because where do you draw the line where does that commonality begin and where does it end it's really quite arbitrary it always has been In the early days of race science, there were some people who said that there were three races, black, white and yellow, for instance, or that there were five races. Usually these things were defined by colour or continent. But whichever kind of grouping you choose, it's always statistical and it's always blurry at the boundaries because... As you get further away in familial relationship, that genetic relationship gets weaker and weaker. And especially today when we live in societies that are so multicultural, that are so intermixed, everyone's travelling all over the place, these categories start to have less and less meaning. It becomes harder and harder to place people. And this arbitrariness, which was always there right from the beginning, just becomes more and more evident as
0: time passes. Right. And of all the things to look at, skin color really is one of the silliest, because I mean, as we talk <laughs> yes. about, it, it changes so much and so often. And I think my favorite example of this um, was the Cheddar Man, who made headlines last year for upending the last generation's conjectures about what a true ancient Britain looked like. And I think what I love so much about this story is that it's a total rejection of the idea that Great Britain, or any other place really, is only now a melting pot or only now experiencing transformative waves of immigration?
2: Well, I think sometimes people imagine that if you go into the very, very distant past, and this is a rhetoric, this is the kind of rhetoric that you hear from ethnic nationalists or religious nationalists, you know, there are such things as original people, When people are told to go back where they came from, what are they being told? They're being told, go back to your original people, the place where your people came from. But what does that really mean? So in Britain, which is a country that I live in, my parents came from India, I was born here. I consider myself British, 100% British. I was born here, I live here, and this is the country that I'm from, as far as I'm concerned. But my skin color, which is brown, we have to again remember there is there is no hard and fast skin colour. Within India, people range from white to kind of ebony. There are all kinds of skin colours. But let's just say brown, because that's easy, um, makes some people believe that, you know, I have no claim to be British, ethnically British, because I do not look as they would imagine the original Britons have always looked. When we go back into history, so now I'm going right back to the dawn of human... Habitation in Britain, in Great Britain. So before this nation even existed as a nation. And again, the nation state is a fairly recent invention. So when we project onto the past, it's very difficult to talk about nation states because they didn't exist then. But let's just say in this landmass that I live in right now, the original inhabitants... 10,000 years ago, the hunter-gatherers who lived here. We have very little information about how they lived. What we do have is their skeletal remains. And one of these um, skeletons were found in the uh, early 20th century. And he was named Cheddar Man because um, he was found in the Cheddar Gorge in Britain. And uh, for a long time, people speculated about what he looked like, a reconstruction of his face gave him white skin and kind of long trailing brown hair and a long trailing brown moustache. But it was only relatively recently that geneticists um, developed the techniques to be able to extract ancient DNA from bones like this and Really analyze them and try and look for the variants that might give away what his physical appearance might have been. And when they did this, they found that Cheddar Man was likely to have dark skin and blue eyes, which was very common, as they already knew, across Western Europe at the time. Hunter gatherers in Western Europe, many of them had dark skin and blue eyes. Um, Now, we don't associate that with Britain do we? we think of the early britons as being white because the later britons were white but actually the very earliest inhabitants would have been by our modern racial standards which is not it is not appropriate to project onto the past but if we were to do that they would look black so what does this mean for our ideas of ethnicity what does it mean for our ideas of who we are When we know that once upon a time, the earliest people that lived in this country, the first inhabitants, the original inhabitants, if you want to think of it that way, were black. And I think this is the beauty of science. I mean, science does get things wrong, and that's one of the big themes of my work. But good science has the ability to kind of shake our ideas of who we think we are and rewrite history to some extent. Now, it's always done through the lens of culture and politics. For example, as I've been describing this story to you now, I've been using modern terms to describe this person who lived in the distant past. I've been talking about Britain and Cheddar Gorge and black skin. These are terms that wouldn't have existed then. These are ideas that didn't exist then. So already I'm projecting. And this is the mistake that we get when we analyze genetics, when we analyze human difference, is that we project our political ideas, our recent cultural and social ideas onto the research that we're looking at. And this is where mistakes come in. What we can say from what we know is that the world has always been a melting pot. People have always moved around throughout history and our ideas of ethnicity and appearance and identity do not map onto the past in any way whatsoever. That isn't to say that culture isn't important, or that it doesn't matter, or that identity doesn't matter. It does, because of the cultural, social, and political power that it has. But it in no way is reflected in the genetics or the science
0: of the past. Right. And the trouble seems to arise when you conflate that social or cultural difference with a biological difference. Because there are very real biological consequences to these social constructs, but it's not like it's caused by biology, right? I mean, African Americans, for instance, are bound to have different social outcomes after hundreds of years of slavery, Jim Crow, state-sanctioned disenfranchisement. But it's very different to say that's caused by biology rather than history, right? And I mean, how do you study those differences? How do you study those those very real social consequences of race without regressing to biological essentialism,
2: yeah, and as as I talk about in the book, health is often the most racialized scientifically racialized area of our lives. We are told that. And it kind of reinforces this idea that race is biologically real when we hear that sickle cell is a black condition or that hypertension is a black condition or that diabetes is a South Asian condition. Well, actually, again, these are statistical. Sickle cell is prevalent in the countries, the regions of the world where malaria is common, and they can be countries where people have dark skin or light skin. (laughs) You know, they exist everywhere. It feels racialized because in America... Black Americans tend to be of West African ancestry, many white Americans tend to be of European ancestry. And so the demographics of the place makes it feel like a black-white difference, when in fact, globally, it's just a geographic difference. It just really depends on whether you come from a malaria region or not. And that's the case for almost everything. Almost every time that race is invoked in medicine it's really a proxy for something else. In this case, for malaria resistance. Uh, in other cases, it might be for diet or culture or salt consumption in the h- case of hypertension. And the race is kind of the easy thing to jump to because we have the data for it. So we use that as a proxy even when it's completely inappropriate. And I agree with you. We need to think carefully about when we invoke race in a biological sense because we know it's a social construct, and this is what I have to keep coming back to. Geneticists have told us this construct. If you are invoking it as a biological, in a biological way, as a biological category, you had better have very good reasons for doing that, because you' are crossing an imaginary line here. You're crossing from the social to the biological. And we know. That, that, that is a huge leap to be making. You have to completely understand why you're making that leap and not pretend that uh, these two things can be conflated. They really can't. Right. Well, I mean, at the end of reading your book, to
0: me, the, the big question, and it still remains, I don't know if there's an answer, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, why do you think we and why do you think scientists keep running to biology or to genetics To answer questions that seem so clearly to be better explained by social inequality or social injustices, or just history.
2: Well, there was that really lovely epidemiologist I interviewed for my book, Jake Kaufman, and he has done some wonderful work on race in medicine. And he said to me that it kind of lets you off the hook. You know, if this is genetic, if the differences that we see are genetic, then society doesn't have to change then we don't have to make any allowances for anybody. We don't have to improve the conditions of people's lives because this is just how things are. We know, for instance, that black Americans die of everything, almost everything at higher rates than white Americans, even infant mortality. Now, doesn't it beg a belief to assume that that could all be genetic. (laughs) You know, black Americans are somehow so genetically disadvantaged that they would die of everything at higher rates than everybody else. Of course, it is not genetic. It can't be. It is because of inferior social conditions. But to say it's genetic, to assume that it's biological, that it's rooted in people's bodies rather than in the circumstances in which they live, lets society off the hook. It allows us to say we don't have to make life better. For people. And that comes down to gender as well. There are still people who make this ridiculous argument that the inequalities we see in society are somehow natural, that this is just how things shake out. And that is the big cop out. And that is what the far right is exploiting now, this idea. They're trying to push this idea that, uh, and this is a phrase that I've heard so much online, is that um, race is not a social construct, society is a racial construct. Think about what that means. That means that the way society works now, the inequalities that we see, the disparities, the huge disparities that we see are somehow natural, that this is just how things are. And that is the dangerous idea that we need to fight back against. It's just not true. It's really not at all rooted in science. It is pure pseudoscience and it's incredibly politically dangerous because it lets us all off the hook for changing social conditions.
0: Race science may have been rebranded as race realism, but it's the same old monster. And now, thanks to the rise of the far right and nationalism, you can see it on TV. Angela Saini's new book, Superior, has been getting a ton of good press, and for good reason. It's unfortunately timely. We have links in the show notes to some of the things we talked about, like the Cheddar Man, as well as some of the things we didn't like the scientists, the actual scientists, still publishing white supremacist journals today. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,